I don't know if you feel the same way that I do when it comes to uh, this time each month. I uh, prepare myself for uh, a time around the table. And uh, as we approach it, I I hope we don't approach it as a blasé, this is just something that we do type thing. I want to encourage us this morning before even we look to the word of God by way of preaching that you make that switch. And I think you know the switch I mean. It's the same switch that I have where by life is rushing by us in rapid ways. Things are happening all over the place and and then you make a decision of your will that now I'm going to focus on something despite all the other things that are going on. Maybe that's not how you work, but that's how I work. It's, a, it's an active choice of mine to say, I'm leaving everything else so that I can focus on this one thing. And so I want to encourage you to do that this morning. I want, you, I want to encourage you to not let this become some kind of religious orthodoxy, some kind of activity that we just do, that we grow weary of, but that this would be fresh and, and new and exciting uh, as we again have the privilege of Gathering, gathering around the table, a command that the Lord Jesus gave to us. Uh, and we are still here 2,000 years later doing it. And that's exciting to me. And so I hope you can approach it this morning with that sense of anticipation and excitement as well as uh, a gravity that it requires. We have uh, thoroughly examined the seven sayings of the Saviour on the cross. Uh, I think it was a good study. I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, those last things that the Lord Jesus said on the cross. So that brought to a close our last series. And so we begin a new series uh, this morning, which I'm particularly excited about. I know I say that about every series, but I'm particularly excited about this one. And in a few moments, you'll see why. Some weeks ago, I was asked at Bible study uh, by Chris to put together, to compile and define some key theological terms because... Uh, Some of them are confusing if we're not familiar with them. Uh, And uh, for people to understand some wonderful words that are used in the scriptures. And so this seven part series, Chris, has uh, come about from the outworking of such a request. Uh, There are some wonderful terms in the scripture. And so I've entitled the new series, A Glossary of Glorious Terms. And uh, to me, that just summarizes what it is we're going to do. A glossary, uh, if you like, a dictionary, a compilation of glorious terms. And we'll be looking at seven distinct concepts. I'm going to give them to you now just so you know what you're looking forward to over the next seven months, Lord willing. Today, we look at the word atonement. Next time, we look at election. Thirdly, imputation. Fourthly, justification. Fifthly, propitiation. Number six, redemption. And number seven, regeneration. Atonement, election, imputation, justification, propitiation, redemption, and regeneration. I want to be very, very careful at this point to let you know that the usage of these words is by no means ever to sound intellectual. The reason why I believe it is essential 
for us to understand these terms is because in them is a whole world of truth that today, sadly, the average Christian is not familiar with. I want to make a few quick introductory comments before we get into our first word or term, rather. First thing I want you to note is that there is a great difference between words and terms. Words and terms. Our series is not a study of words, it's a study of terms. You say, what's the difference? The dictionary defines a word as a set of letters that when modified or manipulated, combined, according to the law of grammar, constitutes a sentence an imperative or some other aspect of language. We understand that. You put some letters together, it forms a word. String a few of those together, you have a sentence. But a term is a word or phrase that has an exact or specific meaning. In other words, just to really confuse you, every term is made up of words, but a word is not necessarily a term. Everybody get that? Okay, every term is made up of words, but a word is not necessarily a term. Howard Hendricks writes this, and uh, the fellows who did our biblical interpretations course will be familiar with him. He says this, terms are more than mere words. Terms have specific meaning based on their context. In our series that we're about to commence... We're not simply examining some interesting words, but studying a world of truth contained in each term. Here's what I mean by that. The the word atonement is a word, but it is a term that has incredible meaning. So the difference between words and terms. The second thing, by way of introduction, that I just want us to understand is the gravity of... Of this subject matter. We embark on a subject that is at the very core of our belief system. Every one of these precious terms is rich with truth and theology and must not be approached flippantly. I was encouraged to be reminded as I studied that the Puritans, who were a group of European Protestants who took a stand for religious purity, in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, when they would ascend to the platform on any given Sunday and when they would begin to read the scriptures, it is well noted in history that their lips would start to quiver. Tears would begin to roll down their cheeks. When they came across one of these glorious terms in the text that we're going to look at, they would often begin to weep and shake because they were so crushed under the weight of its theological significance. See, today we read through a passage of Scripture and we approach a word such as redemption and it just rolls off our tongue. But when these men who had studied these words and understood the the full weight of them They would be broken under just the term redemption, justification. I want us to have that same passion, that same veneration for what God has 
put together in his word these terms. They should be life-changing. So join me this morning as we consider a glossary of glorious terms, part one, specifically atonement. Lord, we have introduced the subject now, uh, and now I pray that you would give great strength and help in communicating effectively this amazing term. Uh, Lord, we have much to look at, uh, but I pray that you would uh, cause our hearts to be uh, not just engaged but enlivened to these truths, that we would uh, feel within us a warming as we recognise that this concept of atonement was made for us. And if we'd understand who we are outside of Christ and understand who Christ is, then it's no wonder that the Puritans would weep. Lord, perhaps it's time some of us wept. Perhaps it's time some of us realised the great weight and the great truth contained in this, that we would not be flippant, lethargic, apathetic towards these glorious terms. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Atonement. Let me define the term this morning. Let me define this that we understand it, I hope. So we talk about etymology. By etymology, we mean how did we get this word? Where did it come from? And of all of these seven words or terms, this has the most interesting etymology, I think. The English word atonement came into existence in 1510. You say, how can you be so sure? Okay, there's a reason for it. It's believed to have been coined by a man by the name of William Tyndale. Now, some of you will know that name. That's the man who first translated the English Bible for us. And we uh, should be ever so grateful for the work that Tyndale did over many years. In translating the scriptures into English, Tyndale invented this word, which broken into its syllables is at one meant. Atonement. At one meant. It was intentionally coined. It's also interesting to note that the word atonement is one of the only theological words with English origin. Almost all the others come from Greek or Latin or French or, or some other language. But this is our own English theological word. That's exciting because English doesn't have much to go on, really, to be honest. They, we're so derivative in English. But here is our own English theological word, and it's the word atonement. At one meant. It's the act of bringing Two parties to one. That's why Tyndale called it at one atonement. So if you take a dictionary today, an English dictionary, and look up the word atonement, it literally means the act of making amends for a wrong, the condition of being reconciled. Again, there's some interesting history behind some of this. The Hebrew word for atonement, which... I know that uh, my Jewish origin is there, but my Hebrew is terrible, so I'm telling you in advance that I have no idea how to say these words, so they're going to be wrong. The Hebrew word for atonement is kippur, with the word being the verb meaning, excuse me, with the verb form being kafar. It means to cover or purge, to make reconciliation. It also means to cover with a coat of something, a coat of paint, we might say today, or a coat of pitch. In the Old Testament, it's from the Hebrew word that we get the Jewish holiday, Yom 
Kippur, which some of you will be familiar with, literally means the Day of Atonement. Yom Day Kippur. Now, we get to the New Testament because we want to have a look at uh, the scope of Scripture as it relates to the Atonement. And we know the Atonement, the word Atonement appears many, many times in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it doesn't appear at all in our ESV translation. It appears once in the King James Version, but the term or the concept is alluded to everywhere in the New Testament. Its primary usage in the Bible, however, relates to the sacrificial system of Israel. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that this morning. So that's defining the term, point one. The second point is atonement in the Old Testament. What I want to do is I want to do a survey of Scripture real quick, find out what does atonement mean, how is it used, and then we're going to conclude by saying, is atonement relevant for us today? So point two is atonement in the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as we know it, was the most solemn, holy day of the Jewish calendar of the Israel feasts and festivals. It occurred once on the 10th day of the 7th month in the Hebrew calendar, annual. I'd like you to turn with me to Leviticus, please, and 20, chapter 23. Leviticus, chapter 23. Now, Leviticus is probably not a book you read very regularly. It's quite a hard book to read. We're going to just read a portion from here. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 26. A little bit of a history lesson for a few minutes here before we get to some application. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 26 through to verse 32. The Bible says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now, on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that day, for it is a day of atonement. To make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Verse 29. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does not, and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall, do, you shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month beginning at evening... From evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. Turn with me, please, to Leviticus 16. I want to take the time to read us a portion here to help us understand this picture of atonement in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16, beginning in verse number 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Pause there. Did you just hear that? The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Now you need to go back to another portion of scripture, Leviticus 10, to find out what happened to them. But they offered strange fire on the altar and the Lord killed them. So serious was this situation. So solemn and grave was this sacrificial system. The Lord killed them. And the Bible says there, when they drew near before the Lord and died... Verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place 
with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement, there's our word, for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell before, uh, for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the bull, uh, the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he had made an end of... Sorry, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and he shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and put on, a gar and put on his garments, and come out, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. 
Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned with, up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord for all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Wow. What a day. Could you imagine? I don't know if you can put yourself in the picture for a moment, but I'm just going to quickly summarize those events in case you didn't catch it all as we read that. First thing I want you to note is failure to fulfill all that God commanded resulted in death. Can you imagine this morning if when we came in, we were not honoring the Lord fully with everything in our heart and instantaneously we died? That's the situation that's before us here on the Day of Atonement. One thing out of place. So holy and righteous is this great God. Wow. And before entering the tabernacle, the high priest was to bathe and put on special garments. A special garment, a special way, in a special order. We can't mess this up. Verse 4 tells us. And then a bull was sacrificed by the high priest as a sin offering, atonement for himself and for his family. This is a great principle that we need to understand. Before we go and help others, before we seek to bring others in, we need to be sure that we ourselves are cleansed and purified. Wonderful example there from the life of Aaron, the high priest. So this bull is sacrificed. The blood of the bull was then sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. which is in the holy place, which you're only allowed to enter this one time a year. The high priest would then take two goats from the congregation, one for a sin offering and the other as the scapegoat. So if we were doing this this morning, I would be saying to you, if I was operating as a high priest, I would be saying, where are the goats? Let's take the goat. One goat is going to be, and we're going to gamble on the goats. Now, this is biblical good gambling. Okay, We cast lots and we decide which one is going to be offered as a burnt offering and which one is going to become the scapegoat. So those two goats would be brought forward. The blood of the goat offered as a sin offering for the people was then sprinkled. So one was killed. This is a gruesome picture. Um, Unless you're a farmer and you're used to this, this is a pretty gruesome picture. This goat is killed and its blood is taken and sprinkled onto the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people. The high priest would then return to the congregation... And then he would place his hands on the living goat and he would confess over it all the iniquities and trespasses of the people of Israel. That would have to take some time. The goat was then sent away into the wilderness bearing the sins and iniquity of the people. What a scene. Can you imagine just being there and the solemn nature of what's occurring? And Aaron places both hands on this goat confessing the sins of the people and then sent away with someone who's ready to take it into the wilderness. And we read in other places as well, it needed to go sufficiently into the wilderness that that scapegoat would not return back to the people of Israel. 
And so that man was prepared to go some distance. And then all the remains of the sin offering, the skin, the flesh, the feces were burned with fire. And all who were directly involved in this ceremony, the high priest, the man who led out the scapegoat, bathed and washed their clothes before they came back to worship. This holy day was a command to be observed by the children of Israel throughout all their generations. This is a great picture of this matter of atonement. So here we have this day of atonement, and atonement is this covering, it's this reconciliation. And annually on this particular day, the children of Israel would gather outside the, uh, the tabernacle and the tent there, and here would be the high priest doing all of these things for atonement for sin, temporary atonement for sin. This gives us hopefully a bit of a picture of what Old Testament atonement is. I want to give us one more example in the Old Testament before we move on to the New Testament. And this is a fascinating one. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And I have to confess, I love this particular portion of Scripture because it is so rich with theological significance. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses 12 to 14 and you're probably going to wonder what's going on here. 12 to 14. Genesis 6 verse 12. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. I know this story. Where is atonement in this? The word translated atonement throughout the Old Testament is the same Hebrew word used here for pitch. For pitch. Which is what the ark was covered with. Now pitch is a bitumen clay-like substance that was used as a gap filler and a sealant on the ark. And we know from the New Testament as well, that the flood waters were indicative of God's judgment on a fallen and sinful race. The ark is symbolic of God's salvation, which is covered with pitch, atonement, and withstands the waters of judgment. What a great picture. What a great picture here. The very first instance in the Bible of atonement is the word pitch. And it's that which covers the vessel of salvation. And isn't there a great picture for us today that the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us is that which prohibits the destruction outside in the waters of judgment. What a great picture. You see, we find that right throughout Scripture, and we know this to be true, but as a reminder, in every dispensation of time, God has always made a way for sins to be atoned. In the Old Testament, it was by means of a temporary annual sacrifice. In the New Covenant, through the blood of Christ, it's a permanent perpetual sacrifice, excuse me, non-perpetual sacrifice offering for sin. Permanent. The difference between, the summary of the difference between the two really is the old covenant was temporary. The new covenant is permanent. Permanent. It's eternal. And so looking at the Old Testament, now let's go to the new. 
Thirdly, let's look at the atonement in the New Testament. The English word atonement does not appear in our ESV translation. It is used in the King James, and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. If you were here this morning for our uh, prayer time, you'll know we've already read this. Romans chapter 5. We won't take the time to read the entire passage here because uh, we just don't have that time available to us. But in verse 6, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you're using the King James Version, you will find that in that last verse there, in verse 11, it is the word atonement. Reconciliation and atonement is exactly the same thing. They are synonyms in the New Testament. Reconciliation and atonement. There is one portion of scripture that we must look at here this morning if we're going to understand how the old and the new covenant work in this matter of atonement. And I want you to turn there as our last portion for this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, please. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to park here before we finish this morning. Hebrews 9 and 10 are perhaps the most helpful passages in the scriptures regarding this matter of atonement in the Old and the New Covenant. And again, we're going to read a, a sizable portion to give us the context. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Let me pause and just put us in the picture. This is where Aaron went. Aaron went into the holy place. This is the furniture in that holy place that we read about back there in Leviticus 16. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Pause again for a moment. So we are here talking about the day of atonement. He enters in once. I assume we've, we understand that. 
Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it, is, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now was it, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the, high priests, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are, waiting, who are eagerly waiting for him. Continue reading for just a moment. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would, they have, would not they have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sin, never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the new covenant. This is how the old atoning work is accomplished and completed in the Lord Jesus, who is the final atonement, the complete atonement, the eternal atonement. Marvelous message is that there is a permanent sacrifice now for sin. It is incredibly difficult for us today as Christians to understand the weightiness of this unless we can get an idea of what they went through year after year after year, which is why I read so much portion of that Old Testament passage. We need to get a handle on this because that was their life day by day. Now here we are on the other side of the cross, no longer bringing uh, bulls and goats, but rejoicing in the permanent sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the atonement, the covering, the reconciliation between God and man for our sin. And you know what amazes me in the new covenant? So in the old covenant, we have Aaron, the high priest. In the new covenant, our high priest is none other than Jesus Christ. But he's not just the high priest. He's also the suffering lamb. He is also the scapegoat. He's also the Passover lamb. He is all of those things put together. He's both the high priest and the one who suffers. Incredible pictures that are given. And a high priest, his responsibility is to bring the people to God. And the Lord Jesus Christ brings the people to God by means of his own sacrifice. He is the totality of atonement. He is everything. That we could ever need. A quick summary, very quickly. The portion we've read there in Hebrews has a huge amount in it, but I just want to pull out a couple of things for us just to be mindful of. We already know the high priest enters the most holy place with blood on one occasion every year. Verse 7 tells us that. But here's what we find in the Old Covenant, according to verse 9. The gifts and sacrifices can never perfect the conscience. They provide temporary pardon in the Old Covenant. Temporary. The Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest, comes and with his blood he secures eternal redemption. Chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. We're told in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 9 that his sacrifice mediated a new covenant. There's a wonderful word that we find. It's, a, again, another term that needs to be studied sometime. In verse 10 of chapter 9, until the time of reformation. 
This is going to keep happening in the Old Testament. This was going to keep on happening year after year after year until the time of Reformation. That's what the Jews are waiting for. They're waiting for this Messiah to come. Now they think when he arrives back then uh, at his first advent, they think, well, here he is. He's going to come as the conquering king. They got it all wrong. He was coming to be the final atonement and then would come back as a conquering king later on. He was coming to to abolish all of that, that in him, in his body, in his blood, in his sacrifice, the new covenant would be made. We find in chapter 9, verse 24, that the Lord Jesus Christ stands in the presence of God on our behalf. Someone says, what is Jesus doing right now? Well, the Lord Jesus, not physically standing, in fact, he's sitting on the right hand of the Father in in heaven at this instant. But we find that what he is doing is he stands metaphorically in the presence of God on our behalf. See, the goat sufficed for a year. The Lord Jesus suffices for all eternity, forever and ever and ever. We find that the sacrifice of Christ was once for all, never again to be repeated, chapter 9 and verse 26. That's critical because when we come to our time around the communion table today, we do not believe that these elements turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, like some would have us believe. We don't believe that. His sacrifice was done once for all. It's never to be repeated, ever. It's done. It still avails for us today. We find in uh, chapter 10 and verse 1 that the law was a shadow, but Christ the substance, the fulfillment of all of that law. He is the one. We find that the Christian is made holy or sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ in chapter 10 and verse 10. There's so much more we could look at. But let me take us to our final point this morning as it relates to atonement. We've defined atonement. We've looked at atonement in the Old Testament briefly. We've looked at atonement briefly again in the New Testament. But now I want to talk about, just quickly before we finish, atonement in the present. In the present. This grand term, atonement, Old and New Testament term, does it have any relevance for us today? Here we are in 2016. Here we are in uh, the month of June Uh, Here we are at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church having a service together. What does atonement do for me today? Why does this term, this doctrine matter? Does it matter? And should the atoning work of Christ play a part in my life every day as a Christian? The answer to that is a resounding yes. Here's a few thoughts for us. Like the pitch... On the ark, the blood of Christ permanently purifies us. And we are saved eternally from the flood waters of judgment. That ought to move us, church. That ought to have us be amazed again at this gospel message that in, instead of being plummeted to destruction one day, the, the blood covering the, the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that has been applied to us has rescued us from that for all eternity. We ought to be moved by the fact that all of our sin 
past, present and future has been placed upon the divine scapegoat. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Wow. What has the atonement done? What has this reconciliation done? Well, it's done just that. The atoning work of Christ has brought us to God. We had no means of getting to God the Father. We had no hope of a relationship except that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's reconciled us to God. Is it doing anything presently though? Because, you know, that, that reconciled, that's past tense. The atoning work of Christ presently cleanses us from sin. We read in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 that the blood of Jesus Christ Present, continuous, cleanses us from sin. Instead of going to that tabernacle, the tent, and waiting annually for any unintentional sins to be covered by the blood of that bull and that goat, present, continuous, the blood of Christ is right now bringing about and continuing to bring about our ongoing cleansing. It's not just a done deal. It's an ongoing, continuous deal all the time. That's why we change that song from saying, His blood availed for me to His blood avails for me. The permanency of the blood. See, if the blood was only specific to a particular time and was not present continuous, then we would have no hope. We would be doing an annual ceremony just like they did in the Old Testament. Here's one other thought for us about this matter of atonement in the present. The atoning work of Christ presently sanctifies us. Here's what we mean. We mean that it is the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, that is presently making us more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And we find that that is true in Hebrews 10 and verse 14. If you just look at that verse as we finish For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Being sanctified. Present, continuous. We are being sanctified. In fact, uh, last week, Adrian was talking, if you were here, about this matter of progressive sanctification. We are being changed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That has come about by means of this matter of atonement, this covering, this reconciliation. The atoning work of Jesus Christ presently sanctifies us. In a few moments, we're going to come to a time around the table where we are able to remember. And I'd encourage you to remember specifically this aspect of the gospel as you pray and and thank the Lord for salvation. This atonement, this reconciliation. Something that we could never achieve. This is something that has nothing whatsoever to do with you and I. has everything to do with the person of Jesus Christ. I want to close by reading the lyrics of a song. Some of you will know this song, particularly verses 2 and 3. Help us understand a little bit more about this matter of atonement. 
The authors write, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. There is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. The atonement, sacrifice made on our behalf. O Christian, may that word change your life as you think of what has been accomplished for us. We're going to take a few moments this morning to look at our own hearts, to thank the Lord, to perhaps come before him in confession if that's what's needed. We have a great high priest who is ready at any instant to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want to take the time to do that. And then in just a few moments, I'll pray and we'll, we'll hand out these elements. But let's take a few moments together.